0: Well, those are not the kind of readings you might expect to see at a pep rally, (laughs) Uh, but this is Lent, and, uh, you know, the Bible sort of weaves its way through ups and downs and difficult times and up times, and uh, Lent being one of those penitential seasons where we're um, kind of specifically um, being led... Uh, to look at what's happening in us, uh, we do come across uh, readings like this. And so I think it might be good, not that I would actually expect you to remember a sermon from last week, but let me remind you uh, that last week we were looking at Lent happening under the loving shelter of God, or as one of our passages put it last week, with this safety net underneath us. That when we start looking at ourselves and we start fearing about what might really be there or about where this might really lead, uh, that we know there is always a safety net underneath there and that we're always doing this under the loving shelter of God or, as our image reminds us, um, that we are known in our pain and loved in our sin. Well, here's a challenge we have, if we're going to try to just think about this a bit deeply this morning. The challenge we have is this, that everything around us today encourages us to cultivate desire. I remember in the 70s, sorry to date myself, but in the 70s when I was studying business at Cal Poly, um, I I started out thinking I wanted to do accounting because my dad was an accountant and realized quickly that that was not my thing. So then I kind of morphed over into marketing because it seemed like the, the softer side of business, you know. And uh, and I can remember in the 70s um, that the, the kind of the buzz at the time was how new marketing was trying to create needs in people. See, old school marketing assumed you needed soap, and so then they would sell you the benefits of their particular soap. But new school marketing, and it's only skyrocketed in the last four generations is designed to actually create need where there isn't a present felt need and that is all around us everywhere so much so that we're like fish in water we hardly even know that it's happening to us anymore but you can't go anywhere these days without being sold something So, like yesterday afternoon, I had a few minutes to kill. I don't know. Oh, I was, I had a few minutes to kill, and I I turned on the TV, and one of those over Hawaii shows were on. Have you ever seen that? You know, like flying over Hawaii, and you know, you see all this wine stuff. And uh, one of my fascinations is the North Shore during big wave season. And so I just sort of Googled big waves at the pipeline. Well, you can't even watch big waves at the pipeline without being sold something. I mean, you can't do anything. You can't look something up on your phone. You can't do anything anymore without somebody telling you that in some way you are deficient. But if you just had this thing, then you would no longer be deficient. And so the whole notion of after World War II, especially of human beings having disposable income, marketers have been going after that, and so nothing in our culture actually encourages us or teaches us to reorder our desires. Everything around us encourages us to play on them. So in Lent, we we stop and we slow down, and we have this opportunity to carefully notice what's actually happening in, in us so we can reorder our desires. Well, about this time last year, my book, Our Favorite Sins, came out and it was, it's one of the recommended uh, readings for Lent this year. It is, I think, a particularly good Lenten book. And when we did that uh, survey on which the book is based, we hired myself and Thomas Nelson, the publisher, hired Barna Research, who, Barna normally studies the church, but in this case, we asked them to study Americans and to basically ask a series of questions around what are you most tempted by, um, what do you do about it, and how's it going? Well, the number one reason that Americans say they succumb to temptation and give in to their desires is to escape. When you ask Americans, you know, to think about why it is that you give in to temptation, it's to escape or to get away from real life for a while. And the second motivation is to feel less pain or to feel less loneliness. So that's what's being tapped into, at least for most of us. And for me, one of the most startling statistics when I got this research back was this, that six out of ten Americans say that when tempted, they do nothing specific to avoid it. They actually don't know what to do. I mean, the research, I can't go into all the research in a brief message, but the research essentially says they don't know what to do, so they don't do anything specific. And the number even skews higher for young people, 65%. And so most of us live in a, in a cycle of frustration with temptation that goes something like this, kind of an inner vow, we break it, we start again with a more reinvigorated vow, and it just kind of keeps going on like that, where we're trying to be good, rather than reordering our inner desires in more of a kind of training fashion so that we could actually be truly good. Now, by truly good, I just mean to say my imagination as I've worked with this for a number of years the, for the, the Greek term for righteousness is takaiosune. And often when Jesus used it, he used it in reference to the goodness or the righteousness or the moral uprightness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so Jesus said things like this, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you will never enter in the kingdom of heaven. So what would it mean to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who for all intents and purposes on the exterior were doing everything right? And that is Jesus's precise point, that this cannot be something that has to do mostly with something exterior, that it has to do with something interior. And our readings this morning help us get to that. So if you look at your Isaiah reading, this is a passage that's addressed to a conquered and exiled people. They then, of course, are struggling with all kinds of unfulfilled desires. And Isaiah reminds them that what they really need is a right relationship with their creator and the one who called and made them Israel. And that a way of life that turns away from God actually leads to thirst and starvation. And so Isaiah invites them, all you who are thirsty, living with these unfulfilled desires, come to the waters, come by wine and milk, without money and without cost. And what this alerts us to, which is actually, I think, a major insight when it comes to us living in 2013 dealing with temptation, and disordered desires, a major insight is this, that the best stuff of life cannot be purchased. It's free. You get it without cost. And it's true bread, as the passage said. It's not something other than that. So, Isaiah says, why spend your money on what's not bread? That is to say, not really fulfilling. Why spend your money or your labor on what doesn't satisfy? It simply makes you more thirsty, right? When you find yourself cult, actually cultivating desire for something, when you get the something, is it ever really satisfying? And of course, the answer is no. And this is the, one of the geniuses of Jesus. Remember, he's with that woman at the well in John 4, and he says to her, "'Anyone who drinks of this water will thirst again.'" But anyone who drinks of the water that I give them will never, the Greek construction is very strong, never, no, not ever, thirst again. And this is what's put before us in these texts. And so the psalmist is put before us as one who's really getting it right. If you look at your psalm there, earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you, My whole being longs for you. So listen to those verbs, seeking, thirsting, longing for you. And again, this is a major um, insight for Christian spiritual formation. Christian spiritual formation is different than Buddhist spiritual formation, for instance. For Buddhist spiritual formation says that you ought to eliminate desire. And so Buddhist spiritual formation assumes that desire is bad or wrong. Christian spiritual formation says something very different than that. It says cultivate, reform, transform your desires so that they're aimed at the right thing. It doesn't say get rid of them. We actually need desires. So train yourself so that what happens at the bottom line is you desire something else more than you desire the thing tempted. Now, this is actually very easy. What if accountants at Enron, just to pick a big, famous sin, what if accountants at Enron, or if you want to think about it, just another big, I'm just trying to think of big, famous sins, or you know, Bill Clinton in the White House, whatever. Pick a big sin that you can think of in your mind. What if the accountants at Enron had desired more to be honest? Or what if Bill actually desired more to be faithful to Hillary than he did sex. See, this is not about making desire go away. This is about cultivating a system of desires such that you desire that which is truly good more than you desire the thing that's being put before you. So when we um, take a look now at your Corinthians text, What this is meant to show us is that the Israelites, on the other hand, were constantly falling into idolatry, and that with Moses and Israel, Paul's saying that these things occurred as examples to us, as warnings, and then look at the passage, to keep us from setting our hearts, or in the words that I'm using this morning, ordering our desires around evil things as they did. See, the problem wasn't what, what was being put before the Israelites to tempt them. The problem was they had set their hearts on things. You see, it's not so much the temptation. Um, everybody look at me here. It's not so much the temptation comes towards you. That's not the big problem, that these tempting messages are coming towards you. The big problem is stuff goes out of our heart. And it's like a positive-negative charge thing, you know? It's stuff that goes out of our heart, and our hearts are going out, and just occasionally they come across something that's a temptation. Like, there are some things that just aren't temptations to me because I have no desire for them. But other places where my heart's going out, then when I find something that I do have a desire for, well, now I'm seriously tempted. It's like, you know, metal and a magnet or something. And then those things hook up. So, the scribes and the Pharisees, this is what Jesus was trying to teach them always, they had a righteousness that said, do nothing wrong. That was their essential righteousness, do nothing wrong. So, if you find yourself stealing, cut off your hands. If you find yourself lusting, pluck out your eyes. If you find yourself cursing others, cut out your tongue. And it did nothing to transform their inner being. So when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, he doesn't mean that you do less wrong things than they do. Most of them were doing hardly anything wrong. It's just that in the process, they were becoming self-righteous and it was leaving their hearts untouched. So they lived with this fundamental anger all the time this fundamental frustration and upsetness and meanness. And that's why Jesus said, you lay these big heavy burdens on people and you don't lift a finger to help them. There was something really fundamental going wrong. And it was that it was leaving their mind and their will and their soul untouched. But this continues to happen. If Jesus were alive today, I think he might might very well say something like this. Unless your righteousness exceeds that set forth by Saudi clerics, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Because what Saudi clerics now are saying, we need to actually put little girls in burkas. Because obviously, ladies, it's your problem, right? You're the problem. That's the first thing it teaches us wrongly. That you and your bodies are the problem. So we have to cover your bodies. But guys, you and I all know that we know what's underneath there. It's no big secret, and it will never work. The problem isn't covering little girls. Sometimes they're now advocating all the way to toddlers to begin to cover them. It's sick. But it's precisely the form of righteousness that most people feel stuck in. They assume that it's something external to them. It's the girl, and if I just cover her, then it'll be okay. And it won't be okay because it leaves the male heart, in this case, untouched. It's not even thought of. But what Paul's talking about here and the invitation of Isaiah, and as we'll see here in a moment in the gospel, this actually calls for a deep interchange, a kind of training where we would train our heart and soul and mind and will in another direction, like a plant. You know, if, like you're training a um, climbing rose. That you just begin to train it little by little in a different direction. Now, there's some urgency to this, and this is one of the places where our readings this morning are a little heavy. There's an urgency to this, as Dennis read to us in the Gospels, where Jesus said, unless you repent, that is to say, unless you relook at everything that makes us human mind, soul, will, body, heart. And turn to God you will all likewise perish that is to say the idolatries of the world if we don't change our heart then the idolatries available to us in the world will start finding hooks in our heart where places where we have desires um, will hook with the temptations that are put before us and so the urgency is something like this that our hearts can become so calloused that it feels harder and harder and harder to ever really respond to God. And so what's happening in in that passage and then especially in the parable of the fig tree is that God is the one who, you know, kind of plants this grove of trees and expects figs. So this alerts us to something, that when God created human beings, he expected something. Now, Not expected in some big, heavy, burdensome sort of way. It's more like this. He just wanted and desired cooperative friends. What what he was picturing was a group of people who would be with him in what he's doing. And so when you come to the fig tree and there is no figs, the gardener, um, and scholars do different things with this, but let's assume for the sake of discussion, Jesus... The gardener, Jesus says, no, you know, kind of like Abraham, you know, negotiating with God in the Old Testament. The gardener says, hey, come on, one more year. What if I dig around this and what if I fertilize it and something good will happen out of this? And the farmer says, yeah, one more year. But then if it's not producing fruit, it will be cut down. So what these passages do as they arise in Lent is they allow us to hone and heal disordered desires. Or for some of us, it just kind of puts that idea even before us and allows us to ask, do we even want to do that? And what this business of of thirsting and as we read in the Psalm or as we read in the Isaiah passage this morning They help us to see, just start with whatever little God desire you have. Like, I can guarantee you, if this were a whiteboard, and we plotted on it on a continuum, came this morning with little desire, came this morning with a lot, we could just plot all of our names across there. because it's just the way life works. Some of us came in this morning for whatever reason with kind of a little bit of desire for God, but not a ton, and others of us would be sort of in the middle, and others would be for whatever reason, you just got really strong desire for God this morning or right now. Well, what these passages encourage us is just start with whatever little God desire you may have, and that God will fertilize it. He will sort of dig around and tend whatever it is that you bring to Him. So what if you wanted to start today kind of cultivating rightly ordered desires. Where would be a good way to do it? And I want to suggest to you that in a moment when this table is set and the bread and wine is brought to this table, that that would actually be a really good place to start. Come. The bread is free. The wine is free. There's no cost. And a place at the table is open to all of us who want to follow Jesus and reorder our inner world, no matter where we're starting from. And no matter whether we're rich or unemployed or white or black or male or female, there is a place around God's table where he invites us. Come without any cost. Come see. See how just a little meager piece of bread dipped in a few drops of wine teaches us that the things around us, our material idols, obviously, I mean, eventually malnourish us. That's the great juxtaposition of this table in our lives. A little piece of bread, a little sop of wine, alerts us that the other things that we find our heart sometimes going out to, they actually malnourish us bankrupt our imaginations, and distort the real purpose for life. But our readings and the Spirit of God invite us this morning, come. Come without anything to give. Christ is the generous and self-giving host at this table, and He is the true bread that gives life and satisfies the body and the soul. Amen.